6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 3. We talked about album before. That's where you take the Hebrew letter and fold it over itself and and use transpositions, substitute the the matching pair to encrypt, a very simple form of what they call transposition code. There's another form of encryption called atbash, and that's where you fold it back, you put the second half backwards. So you now have the, the, the uh, 22 letters of Hebrew folded back on itself. And so you take the first letter and substitute the last letter, the, the second letter, the next to the last. So you do substitutions the same way. It's called atbash after the four letters that make up the, the corner. But the point is, the Talmud indicates that what happened in Daniel 5 was a, what, the reason they couldn't read it on the wall, it was encrypted using Atbash. Now, is that correct or not? I don't know, but that's the, that's the Talmudic or rabbinical belief, the handwriting of the wall. So what they saw on the wall, remember, uh, remember all languages go towards Jerusalem. So Hebrew, like Aramaic, Sanskrit, everything, all the nations that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left. And all nations that are west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Latin, Greek, whatever. Well, uh, so this is what they saw on the wall, couldn't interpret it, but if you interpret it using Atbash, it says, many, many tekel ufarsin. Now, many people get, well, the, 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 the word many, bear in mind, both the Aramaic, this is all in Aramaic, incidentally, the Aram, everything from Daniel 2 to 7 is in Aramaic because it all deals with Gentiles. Up to chapter 2 and after chapter 7, it's in Hebrew. But in any case, uh, Aramaic is like Hebrew, it, the vowel, it only has vowels. The, the, excuse me, it only has consonants. The vowels are inferred. But many means numbered or reckoned. And what that implies is God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Or we might say your number is up is what it implies, okay? In fact, you've heard that expression too, okay? Many, many, uh, then tekel means weighed. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting is the implication. And the last word is perez. You'll notice in the King James it says euphorson, that is just the, uh, the connector and, and the plural form of it. It doesn't, uh, that's not obvious unless you happen to know the Aramaic. But anyway, the word is peres, which means broken or divided. And so Daniel interprets this, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What's not obvious is the word peres, if you infer an E sound, it means divided. If you infer an A sound, it is the word for Persians. And so that's the encryption that was uh, on the wall that Daniel interprets. And of course, uh, that very night, Belshazzar is slain. Now, there's another aspect of this. About ten days later, after they conquered Babylon, that was done by Cyrus's general and his armies. But when you get to the big day, Cyrus makes his grand entrance. He's conquered Babylon, of all things. That was, the, that was a, you know, a, a incredible symbol. And he makes his grand entrance. And according to Josephus, he tells us that Cyrus, when he makes his entrance, is greeted by Daniel. And Daniel presents him with an ancient scroll of Isaiah, 
which contained a personal letter to him addressing him by name, even though it was written 150 years earlier. Isn't that wild? And by the way, that letter is in your Bible. And we'll take a look at it. Isaiah died 150 years before Cyrus was born. It's interesting that Isaiah predicts the fall of Babylon before Babylon rose to be an empire. He just he, he talks about the Persians before there's a Persian empire. Very interesting. The letter to Cyrus, you'll find this in Isaiah. It, it, it starts near the end of chapter 44, the early part of chapter 45. That saith to the deep, be dry, I will dry up thy rivers. That must have caught Cyrus's attention. That was a strategy by which he conquered Babylon. That saith of Cyrus, there's his name. Oh, wow, there's my name, he says. He is my shepherd, this is God speaking, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to thy temple, thy foundation shall be laid. A couple of hundred miles to the west, Jerusalem's in rubble. It's been that way for 70 years. Well, actually, yeah, actually about 50 years, excuse me. But anyway, you get the idea. And uh, it continues, the opening verse of chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord, get this, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall be not be shut. It's exactly what he found. That's, that, that's what allowed him to capture this place. Now, by the way, I have to share with you something a little bit sort of private, and I hope I won't offend anybody here. But whenever I anticipate teaching in detail Daniel chapter 5, I usually find an excuse beforehand to tell my favorite story about Lord Nelson. Yeah, some of you didn't check. You know where I'm going with this, right? And it's just a silly, silly story about Lord Nelson, and uh, who was the great, you know, British admiral. And uh, one day the midshipman comes into his cabin and says, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, there's a Spanish galleon off the port bow. He says, sound general quarters, get me my red waistcoat. Puts on his red waistcoat, they sound general quarters, they engage a the Spanish galleon. And I got this all wrong, but it shouldn't be. I always tell about Spanish, it should really be Napoleon's because I'm off, what, 100 years or something. Anyway, his enemy, anyway, he, he, he sinks the, the enemy ship. About a week later, the midshipman comes in again, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, there, is, there are two enemy warships off the starboard uh, quarter. Sound General Quarters, get me a red waistcoat. So he gets his red waistcoat, Sound General Quarters, they engage it, they sink both ships. Next morning, the midshipman comes in, Lord Nelson, sir, request permission to ask a question. He says, granted, son, that's the way you learn. He said, I notice every time we go into battle, you always ask for your red waistcoat. Why is that, sir? That's a good question, son. You see, in case I should be hit during the battle, I don't want the crew distracted or disheartened by any side of my blood. Oh, that made sense. You got the thing. Well, it's about a week later. Midshipman comes in, said, "Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, the entire Spanish Armada is on the horizon." Says, "Sound general quarters, give me my brown breeches." <laughs> Just a silly story, <laughs> but see, it sets up something I want to point out. When you're in Daniel chapter five. And the handwriting on the wall starts, everybody is panicked. And it says of Belshazzar that his loins were loosed and one knee smote against the other. <laughs> now, you, you, they always talk about the King James. You don't get any more graphic than that. But this expression, his loins were loosed, doesn't 
communicate to most of us what it's talking about. And so when I'm teaching Daniel 5, I usually say, what he's doing, he's asking for his brown britches. And you get the picture a little more clear to that way, don't you? You with me? Now you wonder, Chuck, what are you getting into all this for? I'll tell you why. Because that was a fulfillment of prophecy. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> I never miss a chance to see prophecy fulfilled. You come here to Isaiah 45, verse 1. Let's look at what God had written in Isaiah 150 years ago. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. That's a strange word to use of a Gentile king, by the way. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. Indeed he did, one after the other. And I will loose the loins of kings. I believe that when Cyrus read that, he must have chuckled. What that tells you is the event, a few days earlier when, when Belshazzar embarrassed himself in public, was a proverb among the people. It wasn't just a subtle technicality recorded in the book of Daniel chapter 5. It became an embarrassment that was widely noted. And I'm sure it got to Cyrus. And here he's, he's God saying, I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut, and so forth. He goes on, by the way, God says, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and will cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. Notice this, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Now can you imagine the impact on Cyrus to find a letter that was written, obviously, generations before this ancient scroll, calling him by name, describing the strategy by which he conquered Babylon, and saying, because of all that, you're going to let my people go build their temple. Cyrus was impressed, wouldn't you be? And history records what he did. We're going to see that. See, you'll understand Ezra better if you're with this background. God can say, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. By the way, this is also rebuttal to Zoroastrian, the dualism of, of, that many people attribute to the Persians. Now, actually, that all, it actually all came later, but some, many scholars don't know that. But in any case, God is pointing out there, there we're not talking the, the force of having a good side or bad side, any of that. That's, all, that's Zoroaster, that's dualism. No, beside me, there's none else. There's, and by the way, I'm going to cut it off here because we've got to get into Ezra. But I want you to understand that if you read this letter to Cyrus, is one of the most fantastic declarations of the creation of the universe by the God that did it. Isaiah 45 is, an incredible tour de force, God announcing to Cyrus who he really is. But we're going to move on. What was Cyrus's response to all this? He was obviously impressed. He freed the captives and even gave them incentives to return to their homeland and build their temple. And he'll make a proclamation that we'll skip here because we're going to see it in the text. And uh, Ezra, is, uh, by the way, is the probable author of First and Second Chronicles, also as well as Ezra and Nehemiah, which is probably one book. Some people um, have it in two books, but there, and there's overlap. So um, he, uh, Ezra is credited with establishing the canon. And there's going to be re- a huge return under Zerubbabel. When I say huge; it'll be almost fifty thousand, which is not very large in terms of the whole nation. And about eighty years later, there'll be a second 
group coming under Ezra himself. Ezra will enter the picture uh, 80 years after his book begins, so to speak. And uh, we'll talk about the kings when we get there. So let's just jump in. Here's Ezra. We finally made it, believe it or not. We are in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, I hope that background was useful to you. Um, one reason I want to emphasize that Babylon fell without being destroyed is that it's, it serves as a secondary capital for the Persians for 200 years. Then when Alexander conquers the Persians, he makes it his capital. He dies shortly thereafter, and his four generals divide up the, his empire. It goes all the way to India. And, uh, but, uh, and when they do that, they start building some other cities, and Babylon slowly atrophies. It never gets destroyed. It's off the main caravan routes as time goes on, it atrophies. But even as late as the 19th century, after Christ, there are people still living there. And the point you need to understand by reading Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51, you'll discover that they both prophesy in great detail how Babylon is going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And once it's destroyed, it'll never be inhabited again. The building materials will never be reused. It's very detailed. So you've got a problem. You either treat that symbolically, as some people try to do, when you get to Revelation, you can understand why they look at some of that symbolically. Let me set that aside for the moment. Clearly, the Old Testament requires Babylon to be destroyed in very specific ways that have never happened. So either dismiss that, if you're a liberal or uh, you know a, a modernist, as some people like to call them. That's one thing. But if you take the Bible seriously, and you, think that, you, know, you believe that God means what He says and says what He means, the destruction of Babylon is yet future, and it's in terms of it being a major world capital. It's a city that was not mentioned during the recent war with Iraq. It's a city that's going to come front and center in world history over the coming years. I personally believe it's going to become the capital of the world under the leadership of the Antichrist. That is so preposterous, that is so absurd, that it's useful. I mean, if it was likely, you could say, well, I'm just reading into the Bible things that are on the horizon. No, that is so absurd, that's ridiculous. And that's useful for what we call testing the null hypothesis. Because as that starts to happen, it'll have impact. And as you see Babylon start to emerge, it may not happen in a few months or even a few years, but as it starts to emerge, I believe it's going to be the capital. It was the capital of the first world dictator, Nimrod. And I believe it's going to be the capital of the last world dictator, the return of Nimrod. Yes, the Antichrist comes out of the Roman Empire, but of the eastern leg, not, the, not Western Europe, as is commonly presumed. Anyway, check it out. We'll move on. Now, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying... Now, just a few more background things about Ezra itself. Josephus, Jerome, and the Talmud considered Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. So we'll sort of treat it as one book. However, see the Hebrew Bible has them together. But there's a number of evidences within the books to indicate they were originally separate and just scrolled together. And in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 have have duplicate lists and so forth. But the whole thing's complicated by the way the Septuagint translation treats these books. It'll cause a lot of confusion if I don't tell you a little bit. In Septuagint, the name Esdras, E-S-D-R-A-S, refers to a number of books. First Esdras, sometimes called Esdras A, is an apocryphal book, not an inspired canon, but still translated in the Septuagint translation. Second Esdras, sometimes called Esdras B, contains both what we call Ezra and Nehemiah. And sometimes Nehemiah is called Esdras C, or G, depending on how you look at it. 
may mess up the Hebrew. Uh, and the Apocrypha still has another Esdras, sometimes called Second Esdras or Fourth Esdras or whatever. So understand, you may run into some confusion and labeling here if you if you traffic outside your your classical translations here. And uh, the uh, book has always been regarded as canonical since before the even before the Septuagint, long before 200 BC. Also, it, uh, Ezra is probably is the guy that's credited with pulling together the Hebrew scripture, scriptures as w- to to what we call the Tanakh or the Old Testament or I should say the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. And it's obviously Ezra, as a major scribe, has access to all kinds of historical documents and ties this all together. And uh, Ezra covered two distinct time periods. The first six chapters, 23 years, from the Edict of Cyrus to the rebuilding of the Temple. And chapters 7 through 10 uh, will deal with events after Ezra. A second brings a second group from Babylon. Not a very large group, a couple thousand, but it's important for a lot of reasons. So, um, And between those will be the Book of Esther, it happens. Okay, um, and I think we've set the historical stage pretty well. Okay, so we have Cyrus, the king of Persia. I think I've, I've, I've set the stage there well enough. Uh, he's By the time we get here, he's been reigning over his territories for about 20 years. He's been in power since 559. This is about 539 that he conquers Babylon and so forth. Um, okay, now I might mention that... Um, Cyrus was not a true believer in Jehovah, or the Jewish uh, God of the Bible. But he, uh, but he, uh, his concern was to establish buffer states that could that around which he could uh, uh, enjoy some loyalty. And so he allowed people to resettle into their original countries that had been that had been unsettled. And uh, so he he uh, he hoped to have all these various gods of the subject peoples praying for him. Uh, 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 and praying to his gods and so forth. So, but um, so all this fulfillment. What, what verse one here emphasizes: all this is happening, not because of the cleverness of Cyrus, but because of the hand of God on all of these things. And one of the things you want to notice as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah that God is behind the scenes pulling strings. Now, the most dramatic example of that is in a book that we won't take the time to look at here. That occurs between the chapter six and seven of Ezra, the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, it's an incredible drama of God saving the Jews from extinction. Because Haman is like a Hitler-type guy who's trying to wipe out all the Jews, and he had the power to do that. And it's by God's intervention, very subtly, in, in, in very colorful ways. It's a great book. Uh, he, the, the Jews get preserved. That makes possible not only the, te- you know, the temple, but also the Messiah coming, forthcoming in a few centuries. And uh, what's interesting is many, God is not visible in the book of Esther. Many scholars say the book of name of God doesn't even appear. That's because they haven't done their homework. The name of God appears five different times as acrostics and another three or four times in the form of uh, equidistant letter sequence things. And they're really fun to get into. That's a, that's a whole other study of the book of Esther. The word Esther means something hidden, by the way. But God is behind the scenes watching over his people even though they're, they're not in, walking in faith and they're not uh, um, uh, uh, aware of his deliverance. So you'll see that all the way through Ezra here as we go forward. And here, this is the, the uh, we have the phrase here, stirred up the spirit. That expression is a favorite expression of writers in the post-exile period. We're going to see that again and again and again. I won't badger that, but there's a stylistic thing. The Holy Spirit is also very, very visible. This decree was filed in Ecbatana, where 20 years later, Darius I will discover this decree when it's contested. 
So this is documenting it here. So, Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath made me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Here's interesting. Cyrus is taking the position that because of that letter, God has charged him with the responsibility of seeing to it that the Jews get their temple. That's not because he's a believer in God and in any profound sense. He is responding to the, the obvious circumstances here. And... Uh, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, to build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. So many scholars who see this sort of see, gee, maybe Cyrus was a real believer. No, I don't think so. I think he's just he's just making this a political correct posture to take. Uh, it's not that he believed in God to the to the exchange of the gods that he normally followed. Do you follow me? There's, a, there's an important distinction there. But I also want you to notice something else as we go through the book of Ezra. The issue is going to be the rebuilding of the temple. Don't confuse the authority to rebuild the temple with the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That's going to be the issue in Nehemiah. And many people get confused about that. And it's going to be very, very important for us to understand that distinction as we go forward. Okay, uh, verse 4. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And uh, so he's, Cyrus is instructing that all the neighbors of the Jews... Give them the equivalent of money, that is silver and gold, or material goods, or livestock. He's encouraging everyone to help these people return. And uh, the free will offerings were for the temple, and the other gifts were for the people themselves. This is all very reminiscent of the Exodus. You remember this is very parallel. Remember when the Jews finally got the green light to leave Egypt? They barred from all their friends. Everybody's glad to see them go. They gave them things. Get out of here. You know, and they left with livestock and 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 uh, 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 Cecil B. DeMille said, much cattle, you know, and so forth. So there, these, these people are also leaving bondage and heading home. This very event was perceived by many, of course, as a miracle. But it's interesting that less than 50,000 actually take advantage of the opportunity. Others, by then, after 70 years, had gotten well in scouts. There were many people born there. They're happy where they are. Uh, they're very analogous, if you will, to many American Jews who are well established in their medical practice or legal practice or whatever they're doing, they're very well off, they don't have a draw to go and participate with the rebuilding of Israel. They'll write checks and and provide financial relief, but they don't want to disrupt their lives. Now, their kids sometimes do. That's where they, you know, and so forth. But the the, the analogy is, is, I think, reasonable. Now, you'll notice here it mentions Judah and Benjamin because they're the dominant players. They're not the only players. We're going to discover, as we watch carefully, there are many others that are not uh, directly of Judah that are in there, in in the group that returned to the land. Now, you should also recognize there are many people in Babylon that were deported under the Assyrian Empire. When the northern kingdom got taken over by the Assyrians, and many of them were deported to other places, many of them were taken to Babylon. And conversely, from those other places brought into the northern kingdom. That's what led to the, the intermixing, the so-called half-Jews, the Samaritans, which we see in the New Testament. But uh, uh, we'll also discover that the slaves of the northern kingdom that are in, Bab- in Babylon get commingled with the, the, uh, the captives of, of, of uh, 
the southern kingdom. So don't get confused about that issue. Verse 6, And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold and with goods and with beasts and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and put them in the house of his gods. Seventy years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar plundered Jerusalem, took all the treasures, artifacts, took them to his museum, which is just north of the palace. uh, In fact, Belshazzar, the night that Babylon fell, one of his big mistakes was to take those. He, He raided the museum and took these sacred vessels for his party. That was his way of blaspheming. That, and that, that was, I'm sure, one of the things that angered God. He put an end to that pretty quickly. In any case, Cyrus takes these vessels and gives them to him. He doesn't get them all because Darius later is going to pick up some that were uh, still remaining. So, But he gets most of them, apparently. Even those did Cyrus the king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Midratath the treasurer and numbered them unto Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And uh, these are Persian names, of course, and the word for treasure there happens to be not Hebrew, but a Persian word, incidentally. Verse 9, And this is the number of them, thirty chargers of gold and a thousand chargers of silver and nine and twenty knives. And it it goes on with thirty basins of gold and silver basins of a second sort, four hundred and ten, and other vessels a thousand. And all the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand and four hundred. And all these did Shezbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. And uh, so these are... there's a lot of stuff here, and, and they're, they're, they're referred to in, in 2 Kings 24 and 25, Jeremiah 27, 52. In, in many of the scriptures, you'll find cross-reference to most Bibles. And so ends that chapter. Ezra chapter 2. In Ezra chapter 1, by the way, these actually total about 2,500, 2,499. But the, the gold and silver items are listed as 5,400. Why is the difference? And I don't think Ezra made a mistake. He was a careful scribe. But... Um, I, uh, some people think maybe a scribe made it change later or other he just listed the more important ones you follow me and then gave you a summary you've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler teaching through the book of Ezra for a complete listing of resources available please visit khouse.org You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.